So today I'm here with Dr. Wendell Hutchins. Uh, Wendell's an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas. He received his bachelor's and master's degree at NC State and his PhD at Virginia Tech. So today on Root Docs, which is a mini series dedicated exclusively to the topic of soil-borne diseases, we're gonna talk about a particular disease that Wendell may be familiar with, and that is uh, spring dead spot of warm season turf. So thanks for joining, joining Wendell. Thanks for having me, Jesse, or Dr. Benelli, I should say. <laughs> so, Jesse's just fine. <laughs> yeah, how formal will we be in here? But uh, yeah, happy to happy to be a part of this, and uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, when you mentioned uh, you know familiar with spring dead spot, I think I'm almost too familiar at this point. I was, uh, you know, at spring green up uh, back in April. I was looking out at some plots, and I was like so excited to just see some dead turf again. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it's like an old friend. I missed it. Yeah, it, it, it's so funny. You know, Pat Pat Jones says all the time on Twitter, uh, turf pathologists are weird, and we <laughs> we tend to, to like seeing that. So that's a lot, um, lot of truth to that. <laughs> yeah, the the first question I have is just out of my own curiosity, and we're going to talk about spring dead spot and the the the, the pathogen and life cycle of, of that organism. But just out of my own curiosity, because I, I know kind of what I went through after finishing my PhD at the University of Tennessee, what was that process like? Like, how fast was that process from finishing your PhD, walking on stage, and you're already a professor at Arkansas, which is halfway across the country? How, how fast was that? Uh, it was a whirlwind. And then uh, another thing that was added on top of that is I got married. So just all of it at once. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was crazy. It was, you know, finished up my, my dissertation and defended and uh, it would have been mid-March of 22. And then uh, during that time period was interviewing and uh, got offered the job and walked across the stage in May and then started looking for places in Fayetteville. And so last last year was just the fastest year of my life and got married and started the new job. And it's been uh, it's been an awesome experience so far, but it's just I finally feel like I'm starting to settle down for a little bit. It's been uh, it's been the craziest year of my life, but also the best year of my life. Yeah, similar thing for me. I I remember there was just one committee meeting. I don't know if it was the same thing with you, where, you know, you're with your committee members. It's not just your your meeting advisor. And, you know, in my case, Brandon said, Dr. Horvath, he's like, if you do this, this, and this, you're going to graduate here. And it was December of 16. And it was the first time I remember seeing that light at the end of the tunnel. And I just, like, hit the gas pedal. It was fast and furious. And like you, a lot of things kind of changed. I, I remember um, my first child was born December 1st. I walked on stage December 5th and then moved to Chicago third week of September, uh, December, right before Christmas. And I, I remember sitting in that office. You know, you, you may have had the first experience. You're, you're in your office and you're kind of the guy now, the principal investigator for the first time. And I remember thinking... Like eight weeks ago, I was sitting in a shared grad office with you know other grad students who are also my friends, having a good time. I I didn't have my PhD yet. I wasn't a father at that time. To eight weeks later, it is so so completely new and, and fast, but also very fun and exciting. Yep, life is fun that way. It can uh, spin you around and turn you upside down, and it's it's a lot of fun. Just enjoy the ride, right? Yeah. But yeah, it, yeah. it was a crazy experience though. Yeah, it was kind of funny because, 
You're right. That's been honestly the, the biggest adjustment going from a graduate student to a faculty mm-hmm. member is, is I still feel like I relate more to the graduate students. You know, it's kind of like, oh, I feel like I'm, I guess I'm on the other side of it now. Um, so it's kind of hard to get used to, to delegating and, and kind of being in a leadership role. And uh, like you said, you know, one moment you're you're getting picked on at your defense, trying to answer questions and, you, you know, nervous and all that stuff. And the next minute you're the one that's, you know, on the committee. So it's it's kind of neat. But, um, you know, whirlwind, but it's a lot of fun. I wouldn't change it. Yeah. And, you know, a- after graduation, I-, I moved to Chicago and then I was in, in Canada for several years. Yeah. I got an opportunity to come back to the to the southeast and that opportunity came in October which is a fantastic time to leave Canada um, miss out on one of those winters that's right um, <laughs> but I, I remember coming back down to the southeast and I looked at how much work you all have been doing and when I say you all that is you know all those turf pathology programs from Dr. McCall at, at Virginia Tech Jim Kearns and Joe Roberts in the Carolinas, and then also Brandon at Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You guys did a ton of work, and it was such an excellent resource for me to be able to, you know, read all of these projects, you know, that, that you guys have been doing. Yeah. And in your case, it was Spring Dead Spot. And I, I want to I, I read something. It's essentially the first sentence in, in your uh, scientific abstract of your dissertation. Uh-huh. And it essentially says spring dead spot is one of the most challenging diseases, which is kind of jargon for this stuff is bleeping tough to work on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about spring dead spot and what makes it so challenging. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of funny you mentioned that. So I remember a little backstory on why I chose to work with spring dead spot and a few reasons mm-hmm. I've, I've been interested in root diseases or soulborne diseases. Is I remember when I first started my master's degree with Jim Kearns, uh, he had options for two projects I could work on. He said, uh, you know, do you want the low hanging fruit, easy project or do you want to become famous one day and work on something hard? I said, well, I want to I work on something difficult. You know, I want to challenge. He said, well, you're going to be working with with soulborne diseases. And I was like, OK. And uh, so I took that in mind and I, I've kind of you know built that as my, my main area of expertise or focus is because, you know, they're hard to work with. Um, you know, they don't always cooperate. You've got to, you know, do a shotgun approach. And when you're putting out trials, you may get disease one year and you may not the next year. It's just it's just kind of the way it is. Um, but, yeah, what's so challenging about it is, you know, you see it and it's the infection is mainly taking place in the fall by the pathogen. Right. And so it, that's when the plant is weakening. And then throughout the winter is where you're going to get a lot of your damage. So you're really reliant on having a, a coldish winter. Um, and you're relying on, you know, how, what's our spring going to be like? What's our transition going to be like? What was the pathogen activity? And you really don't know what your results are going to be until the next spring. So you can't track it. So it's just, you literally, it's almost, it's a literal spray and pray when you're putting out fungicide trials, hoping for the best, because, uh, I can't tell you how disappointed it is when you wait, you know, five months, it's been a long, cold winter and you come out and you're getting ready to take your first rating for your spring dead spot trials and you see no disease. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, we missed the boat there, but then you know, you move down the road 50 miles and you find a different site that just got obliterated. So it's a, it's a bear to work with. And any of these, these root infecting, uh, fungi have just been like, you know, any the gamanomyces species would take all, I mean, they're. Uh, I really commend the people who decide to to dive, you know, headfirst into those. But it's a challenge. Yeah, that, that that would be just mentally frustrating. Probably one of the reasons you have you chose multiple 
locations. One reason is uh, you're not guaranteed anything working on these root diseases. Uh, if, if you miss out on a field season, which is hard as a faculty member, but if you miss out as a, a field season as a graduate student, that's potentially one more uh, year. Um, say in multiple locations, you know, what would be another driving force for something like Spring Dead Spot having multiple locations? Um, do you think it's to, to help capture some of the different species that, that cause this disease? And, and how many total organisms are actually causing Spring Dead Spot? Yeah, that's that's the that's a tough tough one. That's actually a lot of the reason you're exactly right why we did that approach. I I went around the whole state of Virginia when I was uh, doing work there, even up into Maryland um, at some facilities there. And uh, you know, one of the big issues about Virginia is it's kind of right in the, the northern part of that transition zone. So we're seeing uh, Ophiocephala corae, Ophiocephala herpatrica. Those are the two predominant species we have here in North America. Uh, and there's also a third species, uh, Ophiosphrella nemari. We don't see that one quite as much, um, but, you know, that it can still occur in North America. But it was interesting, though, when we were going around at different locations, we were taking samples. The first step of my Ph.D. was to take a, a survey of all these golf courses, athletic fields, sod farms in the, the mid-Atlantic region. And the thing that really stood out to us is we have both species, and it's kind of it, it seemed at first it was kind of random on where you would find them. You would go to to one facility and you would have a predominantly Corey population, and then you would you know go a few miles down the road. And the next facility had predominantly Herpatrica. Um, so we really wanted to make sure when we were doing fungicide trials is you know we wanted to capture both species um, because you know they're not they don't respond similarly to fungicides. I always tell people if you have spring dead spot, you don't need to manage for spring dead spot. You need to manage for the species that's causing spring dead spot. Right? You need to manage for the pathogen itself. Um, but you know one of the interesting things we found out from that survey is is a good predictor because I get asked this question a lot from from turf managers is how do I know which species I have? I was like, well, number one, you can send us a sample and we can you know do PCR and find out for you pretty quickly. Uh, but number two is you can get a pretty good guess depending on which cultivar uh, you have planted. So for Bermuda grass, for example, um, if the parent material of the cultivar came from like the southeast, so if it's like a Georgia, uh, like a Tifway or something like that, there's a really good chance it's going to be Ophius for Corre. And if the parent material came from the Midwest, like an Oklahoma State variety, uh, there's a really good chance that it's going to be Herpatrica. And so it's not a perfect, you know, 100% accuracy, but that's a good way to kind of guess um, on which which species is the predominant one. But yeah, that was our approach. We, you know, I, I spent more time in that that state vehicle. I put like thirty thousand miles on in the first year or so. I was just running around the state chasing spring dead spot. But uh, yeah, that was a big impetus for why we did that. Yeah, is there any difference in, in the the size of these pat? Like, is it even possible to look at the the you know the um, yeah, we're looking. The, yes, the I want to say yes. It's not perfect. Uh, this is completely anecdotal, but uh, the Herpatrica patches, and, and a lot of it does depend on at which stage of the epidemic it's in. Is it year one or is it year five? Right. Um, but I have noticed that Corre uh, locations. The patches seem to be kind of yeah, that's right. And all patches come with a Miller Lite can in it. <laughs> this is an aluminum can to provide scale to the to the pictures. So could you could you tell by the size of these patches that oh that's 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 the 
this the 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 core a one or um, it, it, is that just not possible for the the end user golf course superintendent so currently we don't there's i can't speak with any 100 percent accuracy my guess is you know the larger patches seem to be herpatrica typically and the more dense uh completely necrotic patches you know kind of down to the ground we seem to uh, be uh, core and we've seen that core kind of is more aggressive in a lot of ways uh than herpatrica but it's also a lot harder to manage with fungicides than herpatrica is um yeah. but we're working on that right now there's a uh dr mccall's uh student caleb henderson keep an eye out for him he is he's going to be uh doing some awesome things in the future but he's developing like machine learning models right now uh that can detect yeah spring dead spots and and say okay if the patch is this shape and this size and it's you know got this color or tint to it, it you know you can predict that maybe it's caused by herpotrica or maybe it's um x y or z so he's doing some really cool stuff on that and uh, been doing a lot of work with that using drone imagery so i'm hoping in the next few years we'll maybe be able to actually have pretty good prediction models for uh, which species it is but right now the easiest thing to do is like if you want to get a pretty close estimate look at the varieties that you're growing um and if you really want to know just send a sample to me or your local turf pathologist and we'll find out for you yeah nice uh, and so we we tend to think of spring dead spot of being you know a disease of bermuda grasses can it attack some of the zoysias have, have you ever seen it you know especially the zoysias that could be mown a little lower or you seen an uptick of them and i bring it up because you know we bred some really amazing cultivars of bermuda grass they make excellent putting greens and i feel like the same thing is kind of happening with some of these zoysias mm -hmm. do you think this could be problematic on those zoysias that are being you know geared towards you know putting green height turf a yeah, absolutely yeah it's uh it's a concern now it's not typically as big of an issue on, on zoysia grass. But uh, what we have seen though is is when it does occur on zoysia, it's really challenging because zoysia typically takes longer to recover from the patches. So that's kind of the, so if you have it on zoysia grass, it's that's an issue because it's gonna be slow to recover. Um, but yeah, they're gonna be, that's gonna be a concern for sure. I think we're gonna have to start managing zoysia much like we do Bermuda in certain cases with these new, you know, diamond, laser, prism, some of these putting green zoysia grasses that are actually, I've been impressed with. I played uh, played the Walker course in Clemson, South Carolina a month or so ago, and they have diamond zoysia putting greens, and those things were unbelievable. I was very impressed. Um, so if we can get those zoysia grass putting surfaces to that level of quality, I think you might see it becoming a little bit more popular. Um, and as the grass gets more popular, inevitably you're gonna have more problems that pop up. And yep. um, and I think spring dead spot is certainly gonna be one of those. So what you're saying is worm season turf grasses can get disease. <laughs> you better believe it. Yeah, there's no silver bullet, that's for sure. <laughs> and they can get plenty of diseases. And that's, that's what I've seen with these ultra dwarfs is, you know, they're so, so many good attributes to them um but you know we thought when they originally started coming out that you know these things are going to be really disease tolerant or disease resistant um and just like anything in life there's trade-offs right so you may not get some of the traditional you know creeping bent grass diseases but you're going to get other diseases and the issue with these ultra dwarfs uh as far as disease management is we don't fully understand a lot of these diseases yet we're still kind of teasing out the details on some of that. And Take All Root Rot's a prime example. I mean, it's Cam Stevens did some awesome work for Jim Kearns on that disease. And I 
I just blew my mind how difficult it is to, to, to manage because it's really a species complex and uh, Aaron Tucker at Mississippi State yep. at work as well. So it's, 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 you know, we're still figuring it out. I got asked a question yesterday uh, in a presentation. They were like, you know, what do I do for take all? I've been, you know, on a, on a steady fungicide program. I'm doing my combination products. I'm hitting them at the monthly interval. And, uh, you know, that's a tough question to answer because we're, the pathogen is pretty active and it can be active, you know, all year round. So, um, yeah, it's, and for a lot of those, the spring dead spot is the classic example. And I think some of the, those principles should be extended to things like take all root rot yep. and mini ring. Because on Bermuda grass, you know, a lot of these applications that people should be making on Bermuda grass, if you want to be preventative, are when that Bermuda grass is in just peak health, where it is looking visually outstanding. It's in the month of July, your soil temperatures are up, there's still a lot of sun. Bermuda grasses are humming humming along. You could mow them three times a day if you wanted to. They almost give the impression that they're bulletproof that time of year. But that's when you kind of want to, you know, some of these other ones like take all mini rings, start making those applications, even though you may not see the symptoms until later. Spring that's dead right. spots that classic example. You make these applications in the in the fall to protect your turf over, over the winter. And my next question to you is kind of a theoretical one because I don't know if anybody has the answer. What's killing the turf in this situation? You get spring dead spot, runner hyphae. What's resulting in those bare patches in the spring? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the million dollar question. We're still trying to understand, you know, truly the biology and the, and the etiology of these diseases. Uh, spring dead spots a challenge. So with that in mind, what's actually killing uh, the turf is I think it's twofold uh, in many cases. It's, you know, the infection by the pathogen in the fall. Uh, when soil temps are, you know, around 20 C, you know, you're looking at, you know, it's active in a pretty wide range of temperatures actually it grows optimally in the lab setting around 24 c so you you know it's it really likes that warmer temperature um but so does bermuda grass right but what i look at it is is it's a competition thing so ophiosferella the pathogen is able to continue infection and growing and proliferating while bermuda grass is shutting down so then it becomes more competitive than the bermuda grass so it's able to weaken that plant in the fall that's why we don't see a lot of spring developments or increased infection in the spring is because Bermuda grass is able to outcompete the pathogen at that point. So it's, it's kind of a, a, a game or a race. So the fall is the most susceptible period for Bermuda grass uh, to the pathogen. So Ophios for all is infecting in the fall. It's weakening Bermuda grass. It's weakening those roots and those underground structures, but it doesn't completely kill it. Uh, what sends it over the edge typically is when you get those cold temperatures during the wintertime or frost injury. So it's kind of localized winter kill, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a twofold thing. And, and that's kind of what's interesting is, um, you know, you don't really see symptoms if you don't go fully dormant a lot of the times because you're not actually getting cold enough to kind of, you know, have a cold freeze injury. So it's almost like flipped. It's almost like flipped from you know talking with, about Bermuda grass greens to bent greens. Yep. Is you know in the bent greens you got the you know the the you can get summer patch on them now. You know Pythium root rot, and then with them it is what's the those pathogens are weakening the plant, and then it's exposed to just stinking hot temperatures, right. air and soil temperatures, traffic, and then the plants die off. 
It's almost just like, the, the, as you say, the pathogen weakens the turf and then kind of hands that baton off to the, the environmental stressors and then boom, it is over with and done. You're exactly right. And that's, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, and, and I kind of think of it in, in plant pathology, one of the first terms I learned, I was, you know, taking plant pathology back at NC State, you know, eight or nine years ago is this term called predisposition, okay? And they talk about how, you know, the environment, uh, a stressful environment can predispose the plant, so make it more susceptible to the pathogen. But also, I think with some of these these root pathogens like we're talking about, it's almost flipped, is the pathogen can predispose the plant to stressful environmental conditions, right? And like you just talked about, you get the infection sometimes on these bent grass putting greens before you ever even see symptoms. Summer patch is a prime example. I mean, that infection is taking place kind of in the spring, late spring, but you're not seeing symptoms till it gets hot and dry in the summertime. Uh, and the, the work's already done, essentially. The damage is already done. Uh, so it's kind of almost flipped from what we originally learned is, you know, the environment is stressing the plant out, making it more susceptible to the pathogen. I think with some of these uh, ERI fungi and some of these root infecting fungi, it's actually that they are stressing the plant out and predisposing it to the environment. So it's kind of a it's a neat thought. And I think that just goes to show the importance of staying on uh, heavy preventative fungicide programs. Uh, doing everything you can during stressful environmental periods to kind of back off and, and take the stress off the plant, raise mowing heights, you know, turf fans are great, um, you know, properly irrigate all that good stuff. But it, it's a really tough problem. And, 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 you know, it's unfortunate being a pathologist sometimes because I get calls, you know, with an extension appointment where it's just like, you know, what can I do? I just, you know, I've got pythium root rot or I've got summer patch or whatever. And at that point, you're on your heels when you're trying to go curatively. I mean, there are curative options, but it's a lot more difficult uh, from a curative standpoint than it is preventative. So I think it's just so important. It just really emphasizes the importance of season-long uh, early preventative programs and then, you know, working with those throughout the season. And, and you know, at the, you know for, for those listening or, you know, watching this, so uh, today's date is it, it's May 19th, 2023. There could be people out there, it has been a very moderate spring. We've actually had a spring, at least in the Southeast, where we've had some cooler nights. The temperatures have yet to hit 90 plus in a lot of areas. So they've been staring at these spring dead spot you know, patches that are just completely bleached out for several weeks now. So if you're talking to a superintendent and they're not happy with their spring dead spot program or not happy with the results. And, and you start that conversation, would, would you, what would be some of the questions that you ask that superintendent? You know, especially as in like, well, what was your program and when did you start making these fungicide applications? Because soil temperatures seem to be very important to timing those applications. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's every uh, every presentation I give on uh, disease management. I start out with the first slide and every single one. There's four things you can do to manage a spring dead spot or any disease with fungicides. The first thing is you properly identify the disease. And I think uh, that's actually more difficult than, you know, it seems like it keeps me on my heels sometimes. But you have to properly ID the disease. You have to select the proper fungicide. So those are the first couple of questions I always ask a superintendent. I don't mean to insult intelligence or anything, but it's easy to miss some of these, these things sometimes. Um, and then the next question I ask is, you know, what was your application timing? 
And I'm glad you mentioned that about the soil temperatures because that's we've got to get to that where we're using soil temps uh, by season modeling to uh, apply our fungicides. And I think that's that's really important, not just doing it off a calendar basis, you know, the traditional September 15th, first app, October 15th, second app, because uh, you know, not all Octobers are created equal. Okay. I mean, when I started doing this research in Blacksburg, Virginia, uh, back in 2019, October 3rd was 97 degrees in Blacksburg. And that was the hottest day of the year. And for most folks in that part of Virginia, if they're growing Bermuda grass would have already sprayed both of their fungicide apps for spring dead spot. So they would have totally missed the window. The fungicide would have degraded, uh, the pathogen would have still had plenty of activity. Um, so, we started thinking, well, we need to get away from just doing a calendar-based model. I mean, some things it's okay to do that, but we need to look more at environmental parameters and look at these soil temperatures. So what we found is anywhere between about 55 Fahrenheit and 65 Fahrenheit, maybe up to 70, uh, that's your 15-degree window in the fall where you need to make your fungicide applications um, for spring dead spots. So that's, that is absolutely paramount. Um, to time that out. And we actually saw with some products, you can wait, uh, even if you get down kind of later in the, the winter time um, or kind of late fall, early winter, you can actually get some activity if those soil temps stay around 50 uh, from fungicide application. So it's just, you know, it, that's a challenge, but you got to look at those soil temps, monitor those. I think that's such an important thing. And then another thing I've been on a kick about for so long now, and I know we've talked about this with some of your PhD research and and uh, so my master's work is is the target site. Where do you want that product to be? Okay, getting that product to where it needs to be is super important because for root disease, fungicides don't help us out in many cases. Uh, they're not moving you know up and down the plant truly systemically. There's only you know the phosphites do, but other than that, um, you're going to have to water those products in for a root disease. And I think that's so important uh, to kind of keep that in mind. Is is don't just spray it over the top spray it at the right time and water them in. And, and that's how you really can, you know, give yourself the best chance uh, for managing spring dead spot. And to that note, you know, on the, on the, the, the seminar circuit, you know, talking about some of this and then, then answering, you know, a lot of questions, you know, sometimes I, I think people will look at, you know, some of the old school, you know, herbicide labels and they will say, you know, put your pre-emergent down and then the next seven days, make sure you water it in. Mm-hmm. Fungicides tend to be a little more sticky than some herbicides that like to bind as fast as they can. When should somebody, how soon after application would you recommend to apply post-application irrigation on that treated surface? As soon as you get off whatever surface you're treating uh, it, ASAP, because if you wait till that product dries on the plant, it's really, really difficult to dislodge it and actually move it down. Um, you know, Travis Gannon and Jim Kearns and, and Cam Stevens and Daniel Freund at NC State, they showed some awesome research on post-application irrigation timing. And like I said, if you wait 30 minutes or more, uh, it's really hard to get that product to actually move. So um, I tell folks, as soon as you get off the green or as soon as you get off the fairway, cut the heads on. I mean, it's, it's super important. Now, if you're not able to do that, uh, which is not always possible, you know, depending on, you know, how much play you have or, or whatever the conditions are. Um, the best thing to do is wait to water in until the next morning when there's dew on the ground, because some of that product is going to resolubilize and be in solution on the plant surface. Not all of it, but some of it. 
and then you can knock it off and dislodge it with an irrigation event. So uh, it's either immediately after application or the following morning. Uh, but the best thing to do is immediate. You know, don't give it more than 30 minutes to start drying on the plant because it's um, you're not going to get the mobility that you you desire out of that. Yep. So some good points that that can be extended to a, a lot of other things. I remember being up in Canada and telling people with their snowmobile program, uh, get away from the calendar. You got to you know go on 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 what conditions that you're currently seeing and some of those forecasted conditions. You know with the you know back to spring dead spot and so and so with some of the the modeling work that that you've looked into in soil temperatures, that first application being applied right around that 70 degree mark two inches down in the soil and then so you make an application water it in and then um, in most programs you're going to need a second application correct in, yeah. in about 28 days later yep yeah 21 to 28 days later depending on depending on soil temp so if you get a sharp decline in the fall where it starts getting really cold rapidly you want to tighten that interval uh, probably down to 21 days. But if you have kind of a traditional fall where, you know, you, you taper off um, just, you know, with standard soil temperatures, then you can get away with that 28-day interval. Um, I recommend the two applications. I think it's, you know, it's important. And if for some reason soil temps stay warmer longer, you know, you may need a third application, honestly. Um, but you can get away. We used to, And that's the great thing about research is you can get away if you time it perfectly with one full rate, full label rate application at the exact right temperature. Now that's a challenge and that's obviously a lot to, to hedge your bets on, but if you only want to go out once, the soil temperature I like is between 60 and 65 if you're going to do just one application. Um, but you have to time it perfectly and you have to hope and pray that Mother Nature doesn't uh, throw you a curveball. Um, I, I like what you just said because uh, you know, there are a lot of guarantee programs out there and, you know, e essentially, you know, on our end, and if you follow our recommendations, uh, we will support you any any way possible. You know, hopefully everything goes well. But but you said something just just now, e essentially you make two applications. But if Mother Nature isn't doing what it's supposed to do, yeah. there there may be a chance, a situation where you could need three yep. applications because it's hard to guarantee anything because any guarantee program, it's like you're guaranteeing what the weather's going to do. And that's, as far as I know, not possible uh, as of, as of yet. Yeah. Yeah. Spring dead spot doesn't care what uh, date it is, right? It just, it, yeah. it is triggered by environmental conditions. So if it gets, you know, up warm enough uh, late December and the soil temperature up at 55, 60 degrees, that pathogen's active in late December. Um, yeah. So you got to watch out for that. I remember uh, it was around Christmas of 2017, I want to say. I know in Raleigh, North Carolina, it was 75 degrees on Christmas Day. And and it stayed warm for a period of time. I remember wearing shorts on Christmas Day. I remember <laughs> so, that one, yeah. yep. So that was a good example of a year where that third application probably was needed, especially after that, it got cold. And then so you then had those you know more killing uh, cold temperatures. Um, so you might have needed to go out with an emergency application in, in early January, which is so different to be thinking about. But like I said, it just goes back to our point we were talking about earlier is is looking at the calendar and judging everything off of that is 
I think you're going to shoot yourself in the foot, you know, in many cases. You have to pay attention to environmental conditions more than anything and be willing to adjust. I mean, large patch, you know more about large patch than anyone, but that's a great example um, of a disease as well where you might need that third application uh, in the springtime or, you know, a couple in the fall as well, just depending on what kind of spring you have. So it's, it's um, you know, it's a challenge, but I think we're, I think more and more turf managers are moving toward it. I've been encouraged by some of the recent talks I've given and how many people are looking at environmental parameters over calendar date. Um, it's yeah. actually, the, the conversation has shifted in my, you know, eight or nine years in the industry. So it's been pretty exciting to me. Yep. And so kind of walking through this, you know, they, they look at soil temperatures, make their applications and the, you know, let's just pretend it's in the spring, things are greening up. And all of a sudden, say you have a little bit of breakthrough. Is there any benefit to a spring application of a fungicide to hassen recovery, to speed up recovery? And and what else could they be doing to help that that process of speeding up recovery when Bermuda grass is still just crawling on its hands and knees, very yeah. slow to wake up? Well, yeah, I think there. I mean, I think there is some advantage to recovery with the fungicide application. Um, I'm not going to say it's going to be the biggest slice of the pie as far as the importance of, you know, what's going to make it recover. Nitrogen is going to be the, the most important thing. Um, but a fungicide application uh, could enhance recovery and can kind of get you out of it a little bit sooner. And also it could cover some other bases with other uh, diseases as well. So I would look at a fungicide that's going to cover spring dead spot and also uh, a wider swath of, of other uh, issues as well. So you can kind of couple it up into the same application. But um, yeah, I definitely don't think it's going to hurt you for a spring app. But one of the things I would say as well, that's really flip side of what I expected when we started doing some research on recovery is nitrogen is obviously important. And that was the most important thing we saw. Fungicide application can be helpful uh, for recovery. But the one thing you don't want to do, and this is, and there's some people who are probably going to totally disagree with me, but I, I tested this multiple locations and it really blew my mind, is you don't want to go out and be aggressive with cultivation too soon. Because cultivation, if there's a lot of spring dead spot out there, it is not hasten recovery. It actually slows it down uh, quite a bit. So what I tell folks is wait till you're mostly recovered before you go out with your traditional airification. Um, because if you go too soon and there's a lot of damage there, you're actually, like I said, slowing down that recovery, which really blew my mind. Cause when we started the process, we we're like, Oh, of course, you know, nitrogen applications, cultivation, that's going to get you out of it much faster. Um, but it turns out the nitrogen's far more important than the cultivation and the cultivation actually slows it down. So, um, really surprised me. And I, like I said, it's kind of flip side of what you would originally think, but, uh, that's, that's one takeaway I would really tell superintendents and turf managers is, you know, wait, be patient till you're about 90% recovered. And then you can go in with your traditional, um, you know, cultivation practices. Yep. And then I think, you know, back when I was, you know, conducting, um, research, is that if I was not able to produce my own fungal inoculum, what I would do if I wanted to spread that disease around for, say, next year, uh, right in the spring when that inoculum is still fresh and you could still identify that runner hyphae, I would probably coreify, spread that around so I could spread out that inoculum for next year and um, 
You're exactly right. Yeah, that's that's uh, you're 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 moving it around. And I, you know, over the last uh, four years or three or four years, I guess we've learned a lot about spreading uh, inoculum with COVID and everything and how that works. And then taking those same concepts or some of the similar concepts is and, and thinking about turf diseases on an epidemiological perspective is really important. And and those cultivation practices, while the pathogen is active, can really you know shift around some stuff and. Uh, I tell supers all the time, like if you've got a problem area or a problem green, do that one last if you're aerifying, right? Because you don't don't start there, don't move it around, um, whether it be nematodes or you know a soil-borne pathogen or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. That's a good way as a researcher to get some pretty even distribution of disease in an area. Yeah, that's if you ever want to know what to do to get rid of disease, ask a turf pathologist what they do to encourage it. And exactly. <laughs> in a way, you guys are farmers. You guys could, you know, I know you, you worked at, you know, NC State with Dr. Jim Kearns. And I happen to see his, his spring dead spot area. Holy cow, does he get hammered with spring dead spot at his location? Yeah, it is. I was honestly, he posted something on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I was so envious because it was like that is just perfect coverage. And you see these nice little squares where certain treatments were working. And, um, you know, it's funny, too. I We always say with spring dead spot and really any research, and you probably have heard this before, is if you want to uh, find out how to get rid of spring dead spot, put a trial where it's supposed to be and it won't show up there. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, done that <laughs> yeah, right. I've done that trick a couple oh, of times. Yeah. Yes, I, I yes. Tell, uh, you know, industry cooperators. When I was in Chicago, I was like, oh, I, I can get fairy ring. I have a location. I use like Google Earth imagery. It has showed up at this spot every single year. Put a trial out. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the way it is. Man. It's, like, uh, yeah, you know. Thanks for the five thousand dollar check, but sorry, I did everything I could. And That's you know, exactly you, you, a lot of times you'll just run it again for them the the next year. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what uh, that's the joys of, of working in uh, in soilborne diseases. It's it's uh, it's a real challenge with that. But it's funny because we got you know I was looking at Kearns's uh, Bermuda Green there at the Lake Wheeler Research Farm, and it's covered in spring dead spot. And I was so excited because uh, our Arkansas. Uh, Tiff Eagle Green got hammered this year. So I'm like, all right, next year we're putting out fungicide trials. It probably won't show up, but we're going to put them out on that green and it's going to be, uh, I'm going to try to, we'll start comparing images here. So <laughs> I feel like, yeah, my, my, my spring dead spot's better than yours. So <laughs> that's the goal. <laughs> oh, multiple locations is, is awesome. You know, I'm on the industry side now and, and man, we, we ask a lot of you guys, you know, we'll, we'll give these protocols for, it's always nice having multiple locations because, you know, if we don't get cold out east, maybe we'll get cold down in Arkansas, which is, you know, huge having multiple locations to, you know, at Absolutely. least get, get some get some data. Absolutely. And out of my own curiosity, like doing because you've done spring dead spot research for for years now. Are there any carryover effects, meaning that if you put down a high quality material, timed it right and just really controlled that organism? Um, are there carryover effects the next year? Would would you say is would it be hard to put a trial over the cross same, uh, you know, over the exact same area because you've had such treatment effects the previous year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's we've seen that with certain certain fungicides for sure. That if they are highly effective, they're knocking those inoculum levels or those pathogen levels back to a certain point. Um, 
where they really can't recuperate and, and you see activity of a fungicide, we've seen it up to two, maybe three years with certain products. Yeah. And that's not because the fungicide's still residually in the soil, really. That's because the inoculum levels took such a gut punch, essentially, from the fungicide that it's taken them a really long time to recover to the levels uh, where they can actually um, start causing disease again. Um, so yeah, that's, that's something that, and, and purposely with some of our PhD research, we would do the same exact plots and the same exact treatments from year to year to see like the stacking effect is like, all right, if you treat a, a plot or an area with the same fungicide two years in a row, maybe you're seeing that much more benefit, you know, long-term. Um, so it's, yeah, you're exactly right. The carryover effect. I've, I was really impressed by that. We're my graduate student right now. His name is Mike Battaglia. He is, uh, he's actually working on that is, is when you spray a fungicide, you know, we're doing we're testing a pretty wide screening of fungicides. Is how long is that activity really going to last? Is it going to be just a single year thing or a certain products going to be two, maybe three years? Um, and so we're pretty excited to see that. But, yeah, I've, I love coming back in the springtime. It's some kind of abandoned trials and you can still see perfect squares in, in some of the, the areas that had not been sprayed in two or three years. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. It, one of the neatest things uh, that you know I read through in your work at uh, Virginia Tech is that you had a really creative study where you made kind of monthly applications that well you know you would you know have you set up a trial and then you would on this plot you're going to treat you know in the spring at this soil temperature and you, and you did that multiple times so this plot is just going to receive one spring application then like a middle spring late spring application and kind of did it all the way through the fall what you know in, in terms of knocking down inoculum it, it just on the surface because we see carryover effects sometimes when you make an outstanding fall application and you know the pathogen is growing whenever those temperatures reach that point which they can reach that point in the spring as well when soil temperatures start climbing I would have thought that we would see greater knockdown in those spring applications. And it's just kind of an, it's almost like a, a, a chat to have like over a beer sometime. It, it, why do you think you didn't see across multiple locations those, those spring apps doing much the following year for spring dead spot? Yeah, that was a little, I was hoping to see more out of that as well. Uh, we saw only one treatment um, where we actually saw some activity, but it wasn't, it wasn't as impressive as I was, as I was maybe hoping. What it, what I kind of concluded is maybe, all right, so if you, if you spray a spring application with, with no fall application, so spring yeah. only is, is kind of how we, we uh, created the experiment or designed the experiment. So a spring only application well, if you think about the spring dead spot pathogen, Ophius ferrella still grows, actually grows optimally at soil temps of 77 degrees, which is crazy to think about. Warm. So it's it, warm. Yeah, very yeah. warm. Yep. Um, so it has all season to recover and build up its inoculum levels. Now, you might actually be not, you know, knocking it way back in the spring. But it's got, you know, six, eight months, maybe six months of, of time to recuperate before it's shut down again during the you know, colder temperatures during the winter. Now, the advantage of the fall application is it doesn't have a recovery period. OK, you're knocking it back. And then once soil temps get below 50 degrees, 
it's not able to actually recuperate. So you kind of, you know, delayed it or, or suppressed it for uh, Mother Nature's helping you out at that point, but you've suppressed it for that period of time. So that's why I think we don't see uh, the spring applications being quite as effective just because you can apply in the spring and, and it has plenty of time to kind of uh, get back. It's a long and, runway to kind of build up for its next flight. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Um, that's a good way to put it. I might use that, Jesse. <laughs> nice. nice. Well, thanks, thanks, Wendell, for uh, joining. You know what is what is the the first episode of Root Docs? Again, a little mini series that is exclusively designed to where we just talk about soil-borne root diseases. Right, you can find this series on the NV website or on YouTube. So, Wendell, thank you so much for for joining and. And good luck this field season. I know you're going to be busy because it is old, it is second, third week of May. And yeah, that, that summer season's busy for you guys. We're, we're in it full force right now. But thanks so much for having me, Jesse. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope to, hope to visit some in the future and let me know if you need anything. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure Zach Riker will, will keep you busy with some of his, his trials. Oh, yeah. Zach's the man. <laughs>